Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday, November the 9th, 2022. We live in a strange age on the one hand. We want leaders. Um, we want leaders to lead us to a place that we want to go. On the other hand, we're very suspicious of power. We've done a number of shows about this ambivalence, this contradiction. Um, one with the historian Lawrence Reese, who has a new book out on Hitler and Stalin, the two quintessential tyrants of 20th century European history. We also seem to be in the business of demolishing leaders and the idea of personality and power. One man who's been the brunt of this is uh, Winston Churchill, uh, did a show with Jeffrey Wheatcroft, who did a pretty good job, I think, deconstructing all of Churchill's warts, all his problems, all his inconsistencies, contradictions and hypocrisies. Uh, maybe we're just suspicious of power itself, of strong men. Uh, we had the historian Ruth ben Giet on the show also a couple of years ago. She has a popular new book out called Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, in which she seems to suggest that strong men are, by definition, not necessarily good men. On the other hand, we also miss power. We want our strong men not just to be strong, but effective. Did a show a couple of weeks ago with the uh, Russian historian Vladislav Zubok. He has a new book out called Collapse, which is actually very critical of, of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev for not being strong enough, for not leading uh, the Soviet Union to the promised land. So how are we going to deal with the issue of personality and power? One man who's dedicated his career to this is my guest today, Ian Kershaw. He's one of the world's leading modern historians. He's the author of the iconic book, Hitler, a biography. And he has a new book out on personality and power, builders and destroyers of modern Europe. Uh, Ian is joining us today. Uh, I'm not sure how good his audio is, but his mind is first rate. Ian, welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be here with you. So, Ian, this book personality and power um unlike a lot of your other books um it doesn't involve a great deal of primary research it's more a, a kind of um an overview of your work as a historian of the 20th century is that fair yes it is fair it's um it would be superfluous to carry out primary research on these figures apart from hitler on whom i worked many years ago but, um, of course, there have been innumerable biographies written of Lenin, of Stalin, of Churchill, and of the other people that I deal with in this book. So it would be pointless for me to try to replicate the work that these um, excellent historians have already done in writing the biographies of these individuals. My job here was actually to try to look at not at the, not to write mini biographies, but try to write essays which deal with the, the conditions in which these individuals were able to take power and to use power. And so it's all so you could say in a way, it's the structural conditions of personal power that I'm dealing with here. So the two P words in your title, personality and power. Let's talk about power first. 
Who do you think in 20th century terms was the great theorist of power, of making sense of political power? Is there anyone in particular? Weber always comes to my mind as the man who understood the complexity of political power in, in modern age. If you're talking about theorists um, who have uh, looked at, at power without practicing it, then Max Weber is uh, an obvious candidate. If you're looking at theorists of power who then practice it as well, then probably Lenin would stand out. Yeah, Lenin, uh, I have to admit Lenin's my hero. I mean, I shouldn't admit that publicly, but he was a man who understood power more than anyone else. Did that come with his personality? He's one of the characters involved in your book, Personality and Power. The anecdote about Lenin that always comes to mind is the idea that when he was in exile, um, in, in Zurich, he, I think he, he according to Solzhenitsyn at least, he gave up chess because he thought it interfered with his focus on seizing power in uh, in, in in Russia. I, I mean, Ian, in terms of this relationship between personality and power, how did that work for Lenin himself? Was his personality and his interest in power were they intimately bound up together? Were they synergistic? Uh, yes, it was. Um, Lenin, from uh, an early stage, was um, obsessed, I think that's not too strong a word, obsessed with the notion of, of getting power, revolution and power. And um, he remained for much of his life, of course, in exile, as you point out. And um, in 1917, of course, he was still in exile when the revolution broke out in February 1917 and um, wasn't able to get to Russia uh, but was aided in that by the Germans who uh, transported him back to Russia uh, in the expectation that the, he would then uh, further radicalize revolution and this would, uh, the revolution would come to terms with, with Germany, Russia was at war with Germany, and uh, coming to terms with Germany would then free up troops for the, uh, to fight on the Western Front. So uh, there was rationality behind what seems to be almost like an accident in history, which enabled Lenin then to carry to put his, his theories of revolution into practice. And there's no question that then Lenin was the decisive figure in conducting the Bolshevik revolution. Bolsheviks were still a minority party at the time, conducting the Bolshevik revolution and then um, taking that revolution into the, uh, the complete monopoly of power of the Bolshevik party in Russia with all that followed on from there. Perhaps the giving up of chess was more than just symbolic. Um, do you think that uh, when it comes to the great builders and destroyers of power in modern Europe, they needed to be good chess players of one kind or another? I mean, Lenin was a master chess player. I'm not so sure about Hitler, of course, who you know probably more about than anyone else on earth. Was was Hitler, could Hitler have made a good chess player or was he a bit impulsive, a bit crazy? A bit too impulsive and, um, and too uh, obsessive in ways which um, meant that he was not, I think, the sort of personality who would have um, done very well um, in competing on a chessboard. But what uh, Hitler and most of these other individuals had in common was that they were very capable of using opportunities that presented themselves and uh, the people we've spoken about so far were, of course, ideologues who were able to utilize uh, specific opportunities when they came along, but they never lost sight of their 
the key points of their ideology. In that sense, they were single-minded, but able to utilize um, opportunities to further their, uh, their their own ideological aims. What about the issue of the invention of truth? We live in an age where we're obsessed with truth and untruth, the crisis of truth. I mean, Hitler, of course, invented his own truth, as Lenin did in his theory of history. Another of the figures you focus in the book, Mussolini, was the quintessential liar. In fact, you wrote a piece recently about how Mussolini duped Italy. Do you think to be, to get into your book, to be one of these 12 great figures of the 20th century, you had to be a good liar? Well, at the very least, you had to be ready to be, um, to be uh, efficient with the truth at times. And so... <laughs> All these people were were capable of manipulating um, facts and uh, realities where they felt it necessary, and some of them were liars, of course, on the on the, the massive scale. And Hitler and Hitler's regime, uh, Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister there, was was another one who was into fake news before the term was invented. And um, they uh, the the Nazis worked on the principle: the big lie was the one which would, if you told it often enough, would would actually be successful and uh, there's something in that so it, of course it helps if you have monopoly control over the mass media which Mussolini and Hitler and the of course the Soviets did as well and in this in this sense once these people were able to get power then they were able to exploit that power to their own advantage through the control of the mass media in today's um, age of social media uh, and uh, of course, twenty-four-seven news. That's not so easy. But then, other opportunities present themselves through the exploitation of social media. Do you think there's a danger, and I, I'm sure you have to deal with this question all the time in interviews, and probably in your own mind as well, of normalizing Hitler by putting him in this book and in books like this of just being another leader, another personality in the pursuit of power. Is there anything? in your mind as as this as you've dedicated your, your career in many ways to studying hitler is there anything about hitler that that makes him different from these other characters from the the de gaulle's and the adenauers and the thatchers who you cover in the book uh yes but uh, bear in mind that there's no normalization of hitler in including him in this book uh, he's a monster, along with some other monsters in the book. Look at Stalin, for example. Uh, but um, in order to uh, pick out the singularities, one has to compare. Uh, there's no way around that. And um, in this, uh, at the very end of the book, I, I, I single out two individuals who I say, well, in the first half, the terrible first half of the 20th century, who was the individual who stood out more, more than any other one? I could have chosen Lenin or Stalin or Churchill, possibly, but I, I chose Hitler. The others were in many ways, or Stalin and, and Churchill, reacting to Hitler in certain ways. What, what singled out Hitler was the fact that he wanted to conquer the uh, whole of Europe and, um, in, in a way, by 1942, seemed to be coming close to doing that. And so Hitler was the chief author of the Second World War, and he was the chief author of the most terrible genocide in history, the Holocaust. And so those two things alone, which are implanted in Hitler's thinking from a relatively early stage, those two things alone single Hitler out from any other dictators and from any other 
uh, leaders who I include in this book. Ian, uh, the subtitle of the book is Builders and Destroyers of Modern Europe. It doesn't say 20th century Europe, but you focus on the 20th century. Is there anything conceptually that distinguish the characters in the book, the 12 Europeans in the book, from 19th century European leaders, everyone from uh, Napoleon to Bismarck? Yes, I mean, just on the title for a second, first one, my own title, which I had right to the end, so I submitted the manuscript, the typescript, was makers of 20th century Europe. Uh, so the publishers really for their own wanted wanted me to change that subtitle into what it's we have. It's always the publishers for Ian, isn't it? No, I agreed to it. I agreed to the change, but the change, the change is less precise than my original subtitle was. Anyway, um, what singles them out, what, what differentiates them from 19th century uh, leaders? Well, for one thing, they are now dealing with mass publics and um, it, these are no longer monarchical regimes, um, but the monarchies, many of the monarchies had fallen. Those that remained were then large constitutional monarchies or they were changed into that in the, across the 20th century. Um, so they, these individuals, whether they're dictators or Democrats, they're having to deal now with the mobilization of entire societies. And as I said earlier on, one way in which they dealt with this through was um, in some instances through dictators, through monopoly control of media. But now more than 19th century uh, politicians who had to get used to daily newspapers and so these now had to get used to the radio, for instance, and later on to television as well, and to the news reporting that comes through those media. And so um, manipulation of the media went hand in hand with the uh, uh, the abilities of 20th century leaders' power and then to exploit that power for their own ends. Do you think there's anything substantially different about the 21st century? You gave an interesting interview uh, to Lan La Vanguardia um, about um, the connection between Putin and Gorbachev in this lineage, I guess, Stalin, Gorbachev, uh, Putin. Um, do the leaders of the early 20th century, um, are they in any way substantively different from the characters that you deal with in your book in terms of what they're having to deal with? Obviously, the Internet wasn't around in the Second World War, but it's probably just the next chapter in the history of radio or television. In, in certain ways, they've got to um, deal with the fact that we have since the Second World War, uh, lived in a world of, um, in the Western world anyway, of democracies. And so uh, prominent autocratic leaders who are coming forward, populist leaders and so on in different European countries and elsewhere, they have to cope with the fact that now democracy is, at least on the face of it, an established form of government, which they can undermine in all sorts of ways uh, and, and do. Uh, but the, the difference between that and the 20th century leaders that we're talking about, where democracy was an, uh, a new form of government after the First World War. So in the 1920s and 1930s, democracy, where, where it existed, was very flimsy, very unstable. And leaders such as Hitler could get, um, could get uh, peons of praise and huge applause from, uh, from the crowds, where they said, we're going to destroy democracy, we're going to sweep it away and replace it by dictatorships. Now, modern dictators in the 21st century don't say that. They have facade democracies, as you see 
with Putin in Russia and elsewhere for that matter, or with Orban in Hungary who speaks of an illiberal democracy. So they are, uh, they, they, they pay lip service to democracies while still un trying to undermine it in different ways. That's, that's one significant difference. And um, it, I think we also now have therefore the fact which we can't ignore in the present conflicts in Ukraine, that we're dealing with nuclear powers. And that it also is a massive difference. And then if we're looking at Europe, one of the things that we can add on to that is that in, in Europe, the uh, leaders of European, West European countries anyway, have to operate within the constraints of uh, the European Union, which is a supranational, uh, partly supranational, partly national organization. So it can't simply be overridden by decisions that, that uh, individual leaders take. That constrains their own power. Uh, but it provides a different format of power than you would get in the nation states of the 20th century. In terms of the creation of, of what you just mentioned, the, the European Union, uh, you include uh, two German post, uh, post-war German leaders in the book, Adenauer and uh, Helmut Kohl. You also, of course, include uh, de Gaulle, one of the other uh, founders of, of, of post-war Europe. Uh, how important are their achievements, both uh, the, the, the two German leaders and, and, and de Gaulle, how important are their achievements in creating a united Europe to get them into this book, into your personality and power book in terms of their achievements and significance? Is that their major building legacy, the EU? Um, in part, if you, if you take them just briefly one by one, um, Adna was, um, I think, his chief uh, achievement, elastic achievement, is actually to, to rebuild from scratch, to create from nothing the state of West Germany um, and turn that into a flourishing democracy in Western Europe. Uh, and uh, Adna did that uh, really from a very unpromising start. And he was helped by the economic miracle, which was actually more the achievements of economics minister Ludwig Erhardt. But nonetheless, Adenauer presided over this. And one of the things that Adenauer seems so self-evident today, but it wasn't self-evident at the time, was to bind West Germany, the new Federal Republic of Germany, into the West and into, uh, particularly in the, into um, the Republic to the United States. Now, I say it wasn't so evident, self-evident, because in 1952, Stalin made an offer, seemingly an offer anyway, of a demilitarized, united Germany and democratic Germany, which was very tempting to many people in the social democrat side of politics. So, it's obvious. Now, if we move on to um, the, the, other, the other German I mentioned, Helmut Kohl. Uh, he was a pretty average sort of chancellor of Germany in the 1980s, but in his case, then, he was faced with a very beneficent uh, crisis in 1989 when, thanks to Gorbachev largely, the, um, the uh, Iron Curtain fell and uh, Helmut Kohl was in the, had the opportunity then, uh, which was thrust upon him, to bring about the unification of Germany in those conditions, which he did. He had an instinct for power. He used, used that power very aptly to bring about the unification of Germany and following on from that, also played a major part in the uh, establishment of the uh, of the euro of the currency 
of the euro and also of the what came <laughs> in 1991 the european union the previously been the European Economic Community. So Kuhl's importance resided on his role in those two years, Adenauer's in the building of West Germany. Um, De Gaulle, um, a different character altogether, strongly autocratic in tendencies. His major achievement was the, uh, the establishment then of, of, um, of, of uh, the victory over uh, of France, um, of course, ably assisted by the United States and Britain, which he was a bit unwilling to concede. But nonetheless, after the war had been attained, uh, de Gaulle spent a time in the wilderness then, in the political wilderness, before coming back in 1958 to um, end the Algerian war, which had been a massive crisis in France, lingering for since 1954. By 1962, he ended that. He created the um, a constitution for France which still stays in existence today, a major achievement. And he also contributed to the building of the European Union, although it has to be said in his case that what he wanted was a, a, a Europe which was a Europe of nation states, a Europe of the fatherland, of the fatherlands, of the patrie as he called it, uh, which will be, uh, which is only partly what has come about. So it's a, a type of compromise, the European Union now, between the sort of um, the sort of Europe that de Gaulle wanted of the of the patrie of the nation states and the supranational entity that Helmut Kohl wanted and uh, the other French leader Mitterrand went uh, partly towards in 1991 in the Maastricht conference. So de Gaulle's contribution to the current political uh, the uh, at the um, European Union is less profound than his role in establishing France as a great power again in European power anyway. Uh, after the Second World War. There's no surprises in your book in terms of Churchill, de Gaulle, Hitler, of course, Stalin, Lenin. But if there's one surprise of 12 personalities who built and destroyed modern Europe, um, it's a man who most of our viewers won't know a great deal about, Joseph Broz, um, who is otherwise known as Tito. How did Tito get into this book, uh, Ian? Did you struggle? I mean... I assume you started with a short list and you had to eliminate one or two. Was 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 was, was Tito number twelve on the list? Um, don't know. Can't remember really. But um, but he, he he wasn't amongst the, uh, the, the 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 immediate choices. That's for that's for sure. But I, I thought that Tito was important because uh, on a European level. So I'm not just talking about people who are important for their own countries, but are important for Europe. And one of the things that Tito did, he fell out with Stalin big time in 1948 and broke with Stalin and constituted the Yugoslavia, therefore, as um, uh, an independent uh, type of uh, communist state, which was not part of the Soviet bloc, but nor was it part of the Western European uh, economic bloc or, or um, part of what became, of course, then uh, developed as NATO. So it was a very unusual position that, that Tito held there. But in, in, in breaking with Stalin, what he did was prevent Stalin and the Soviet Union from encroaching on the Balkans, which unquestionably would have happened otherwise. So in European terms, it was very important that Yugoslavia remained independent and that Stalin and the Soviet Union did not penetrate right down to uh, as far as Turkey, down to the Bosphorus. So um, that was a, a fairly important role that, that Tito played. And he also, just another thing about Tito, which is uh, less known today, of course, but he was the leader of the non-aligned bloc in 
parts of neither of the Soviet bloc uh, nor of the Western bloc. And this non-aligned bloc um, had members from across the world and Tito um, had good relations with many uh, leaders from uh, Africa and India and so on. And he played a significant role in that non-aligned um, bloc. And the final thing is that, of course, Tito's importance is shown in what followed. So in all these individuals, I look at their legacy, and their legacy is sometimes a lengthy one, a profound one. In Tito's case, his legacy was actually the collapse of the country which he built. So within uh, 10 years of his death, uh, Yugoslavia collapsed into, into uh, the terrible war that we saw at the beginning of the 1990s. So Tito deserves his place in this book. Yeah, I think there's a case to be made that maybe Milosevic should have been in as the destroyer. Uh, he had more of a consequential influence, but that's another book, another story. I mean, of, of your 12 characters, um, 11 are men. And the final one, of course, doesn't need an introduction, Margaret Thatcher. Um, you, you refer, I think Cole met, mentioned that Thatcher had this sort of odd mix of sexuality and toughness. Uh, in terms of writing and dealing with Thatcher, is gender relevant, Ian? Is it important that in this book of personality and power, there are 11 men and, and Mrs. Thatcher with a big handbag? Well, Mrs. Thatcher was often thought of in Britain at the time as the, the strongest man in the cabinet. But, um, but uh, leaving that, that aside, um, she came to power in a man's world. Politics was a man's world in the, in the 20th century, unquestionably. And she had a double handicap. First of all, she was a woman, so the gender factor was important. And secondly, her second handicap was that she came from a provincial lower class background. And um, the, uh, this was unusual at that time in the Conservatives, who generally chose their leaders from, uh, from people from the, the higher social classes. And she had to contend with this double disadvantage in the early stages when she was gaining power, and for that matter, in the early years when she was in power. So it was a, a, quite an achievement on her part to gain power in the first place. And then, of course, in the 11 years that she was in power, she transformed Britain, no question about it. So she was a very important transformative leader in Britain and, and uh, to some extent in Europe more widely and also in regard to the uh, relations with Ronald Reagan and the, um, the Anglo-American uh, relationship, which then played its part, um, secondary to that of Gorbachev and Kohl, but nonetheless played its part in the, um, in the uh, process that led up to the end of the Cold War. Women and power, though, is an important subject. Increasingly, uh, Ben Giet's book, for example, really focuses on the gendered aspect, Mussolini's attitude in particular to, to women. Uh, there are a new generation of female leaders in Europe, uh, Marine Le Pen, for example, um, and uh, Georgia Maloney, the, the inheritor, I guess, of the, the Mussolini tradition in, in Italy, now is the first, uh, first female prime minister of Italy. And there's also the fate of failed female leaders uh, like Liz Truss in the UK, who seems to have been savaged by the media in a way that men wouldn't have been. What do you make of the broader question of gender and power, Ian, both in the 20th and in the 21st century? Well, we've seen a very welcome, um, uh, a, a, um, big improvement in the status of women generally in society and in politics 
uh, as well since the 1970s or thereabouts. It's an, an ongoing process, which is far from being ended. Um, but uh, there, have, there have been big improvements in that regard. And were I to write, a, which I won't be doing, but were I to write a sequel to this dealing with the 21st century, then, of course, a number of women would figure in that. And um, they, they uh, list trust probably not, but, um, but maybe other women would do. And, um, and it's the case also in the 20th century even that outside Europe, there were one or two significant women leaders, Indira Gandhi in India, uh, Golda Meir in, in uh, Israel come to mind. In the 21st century, we are, if I were to deal with this uh, now in the 21st century, I would have to include, um, I would have to make it global, not just European. So you'll be dealing then with people like Xi Jinping and, um, and uh, Trump and uh, Putin, obviously, and, and others as well. So it will be a global one and women would figure more prominently than they did do in my um, concentration on the 20th century. But you don't have any assumptions on gender and power that women approach broadly the issue of power and legitimacy of authenticity uh, in political terms differently from men. You think it's wrong to make any judgments, any rules on that front? I, I, I don't think I have sufficient um, knowledge or experience of uh, women in power to be able to offer a generalization that fits on that. And we just remark that. Um, uh, I already mentioned that when Mrs. Thatcher was in power, a common joke was that she was the strongest man in the cabinet. So she was able to use her femininity when it suited her, but also was a very, uh, had very, um, sometimes very masculine approaches to power or approaches which we would associate more with, with men than women. So the notion that women have a softer approach to power doesn't seem to be borne out by the first British Prime Minister. Um, if you look at... Uh, Let's trust the very recent and very short-lived British Prime Minister, again a Conservative, who had three three uh, women Prime Ministers in uh, the Conservative Party, none so far in the Labour Party. But Liz Truss also was uh, very radical in, in certain ways and very uh, strong and, and uh, aimed to be tough. It didn't last for very long, mercifully, but she did. Um, now, if you look at uh, another 20th century, uh, 21st century woman leader, very important one in my mind, Angela Merkel in Germany. Um, she was a very different caliber altogether who got to the top as uh, you have to do, women or women or men, by, by using elbow power. So she knew how to get power, how to stay in power, but her way of operating in power was very consensual and very negotiating uh, her way through the thickets. So um, the women that uh, come to mind straight away uh, of themselves quite different um, approaches to power. In general, I think you could say that we would that women would be a softening influence, uh, providing less of a macho, domination, domineering influence on politics. But I think the jury's still out. We just have to wait until there are more women who've got to the top who use their power, and we can able then we'll be able then to analyse it and make generalisations about it. Yeah, I think Angela Merkel seems to me to be more like a 20th century than a 21st century leader. Uh, your book has been very well reviewed, as all your books are um, in, the, in the American press, Ian. Congratulations on that. The new book, Personality and Power, Builders and Destroyers of Modern Europe. Uh, but the, the Wall Street Journal that generally gave the book um, a good review was a little miffed that you didn't include any Americans. Um, 
Reagan, of course. Uh, here we have a picture of uh, Mrs. Thatcher and, and, and Gorbachev. Uh, no Reagan there, but Reagan was central in that three-way relationship. Um, we did a show uh, recently on FDR about becoming FDR with the American uh, journalist Jonathan Darman. Sure, I, I, I understand perhaps Reagan not getting in, but what about FDR? Shouldn't he have been in the book? Uh, Maybe. I, I thought long and hard about, about Roosevelt, I must say, and um, I decided in the end that, that, uh, that I wouldn't include him. Um, it, maybe it was wrong to leave him out, but I, I thought if I included uh, one American president uh, who admittedly had a very uh, significant role to play between, 1940, between 1941 and his death early in 1945, a uh, significant role in European politics, I mean. Um, but I, um, I, I thought, well, what about then other American presidents who also played a, a fairly important role in Europe? Uh, Woodrow Wilson, for example, Harry Truman, um, Reagan, you mentioned, uh, Clinton, uh, you could you could mention all these uh, all these individuals and and others uh, who and I, I just thought well the other thing was that I thought if I deal with Roosevelt in the pattern that I use in the book where I look back at the structural conditions that provide them with their route to power and then how they utilize it I would have to go very deeply into American history at the time uh, and the, that would then leave open the question of uh, not just of space in the book, but then do I include others, non-European leaders in it? So, um, I, I, as I said, I, I wrestled with this question quite a long time. Maybe I came to the wrong answer, but I did come to the answer that, uh, that I, I would concentrate on European leaders and leave outside, the, leave out the American uh, leaders, prominent though they were in many ways. And it has to be said that I do, nonetheless, as you mentioned Roosevelt on many occasions in dealing with the, in the Churchill chapter especially, but elsewhere, and also um, Reagan too in the Gorbachev chapter. So it's not that they are excluded from the book, but they, they're not included as special individual cases. Ian, you've written many, many books. You're one of the world's leading uh, historians. One book that I particularly enjoyed was your book uh, back in 2008, Fateful Choices, 10 Decisions that changed the world, 1940 to 41. Of course, you know, we could do a counterfactual. Imagine Hitler decided not to invade the Soviet Union and so on and so forth. In terms of your philosophy of history uh, in the context of this new book, Personality and Power, are there structural features you think that made, for example, Hitler's decision to invade the Soviet Union inevitable somehow outside his personality uh his personality was decisive in that i think um if, it, if he had not been leading germany at the time if there had been another nationalist leader it may well be that germany would not have invaded the soviet union we can never know of course in these things um uh, but uh it his his individual uh ideology played a very important part both in the uh, road to the war against the Soviet Union and also in the in the Holocaust. And I, I say quite explicitly in the book, uh, no Hitler, no Holocaust. That doesn't mean to say, of course, there wouldn't have been anti-Semitic policies in Germany in the 1930s, but that they would have led to the Holocaust without Hitler, I think is difficult to imagine. So 
Um, in that's that's just one individual, and you see in that then, uh, and the counterfactual, even though it's just speculation, that um, individuals do shape history, even within the structural constraints. And in this book, uh, I'm very keen to emphasize the the crisis. Crisis is a sort of light motif. So you need a crisis to bring these individuals to power. And the bigger the crisis, the more profound the crisis, the more profound in many ways is the impact that that individual is likely to have on, on uh, history. And just one last point about counterfactuals. I do include one counterfactual in the book explicitly, which is what would have happened if Churchill had not been Prime Minister of Britain in 1940, but it had been his, the other contenders become Prime Minister, Lord Halifax. The history of, uh, of Britain, of Europe and of the world would have been very different. Maybe I put the question wrong, Ian. What I think I meant to ask is, is personality itself the iron cage? In other words, however one thinks of counterfactuals, was Hitler led by his personality to make these decisions, which obviously in terms of Germany and his career were very unwise to invade the Soviet Union? Uh, let me rephrase the question. Um, in terms of these structural forces, are these men, mostly men, and one woman in the book, are they all themselves, in a way, prisoners of their own personality when it came to politics? Their own personality certainly plays a big part in shaping the way in which they devise the politics. Once they're in power, once the structural conditions have provided them with the route to power, then their personality plays a, a, a big role in the way in which the policy then is shaped. And I think that goes for all of the individuals that I deal with here. But if you actually look at Hitler in particular now, um, by the middle of the 1920s, Hitler had got already a, a, a very uh, a terrible but coherent worldview or, or ideology, which revolved around removal of the Jews, whatever that meant, and, um, and the acquisition of living space in Eastern Europe. At the expense of Russia. So those two ideals were for Hitler personally, a part of his personality. For the German state, they were not significant initially in bringing Hitler to power, nor were they actually the key things in the early part of Hitler's rule. But they, by Hitler never lost faith, and by 1936 already, he was speaking explicitly about preparing for a war against the Soviet Union. So his personality. And his uh, determination to pursue his ideological goals did play a very important role in the shaping of that regime. And in actually um, other areas of that regime, his own personal ideological obsessions. So by 1939, you've got those two ideas that were Hitler's which have become central to the thrust of the German state. And I think that's what we see in other ways with these individuals, that their personality, they, the persons they are, conveys itself into the regime as the followers at different levels then buy into that type of regime which they represent. Well, that's wonderful stuff. Big history, big personalities, and a big historian to tell the story. Ian Kershaw's new book, Personality and Power, should be builders and destroyers of 20th century Europe, but the 
editors decided to call it Modern Europe. Either way, we know what the book's about. Congratulations, Ian, on another major piece of work. Um, in addition to your new book, what else have you uh, would you suggest our readers and viewers uh, read? What what other books are are you enjoying these days? Well, thank you very much for the compliments. It's very kind of you, indeed it is. But, uh, uh, well, a couple of things that I've been reading uh, recently which have impressed me greatly. Uh, I'm right in the middle of, of reading this book. I don't know whether you're able to see it. Um, it's a book Mussolini, I, yeah. Yeah, Mussolini, uh, Myth and Memory by Paul Corner. Corner as in corner of the room. And um, Paul Corner is a specialist on Italy. He actually lives in Italy. And um, that it's a short book, but it's actually brilliant. And uh, I've, I've been really impressed by reading that. I'm only partway through it at the minute. The other two things that I've read very recently um, are on Putin. And um, one of them is the new biography by Philip Short, Putin, uh, Life and Times. Um, I think you can see it here. Um, uh, Putin, life, his Life and Times, Philip Short. And, um, and also... Slightly older, but an excellent analysis of Putin's regime by my fellow countryman, Robert Service. Um, it's called, um, if you can see that, um, Kremlin Winter by Robert Service. That's a, that's a superb analysis of, of that regime or Putin's part in it. Came out as a paperback a couple of years ago, I think. So it doesn't take us right up to the Ukraine war, but it's essential reading to understand how we get to that point. Excellent. 